So I grew up in Bethesda and growing up for almost my entire life, I've been hearing about this mystical, magical purple line. I'm going to be honest, I won't believe it exists until I'm standing on it with my own two feet. Today on CityCast DC, we're addressing audio producer Julia Karen's very real concern that the purple line will never be built. It's been in construction forever, and that's why I was so eager to sit down with investigative journalist Eric Cordelessa to talk about his latest report on why construction is taking so long and how Maryland Governor Larry Hogan is tied up in it all. Stick around at the end for some thoughts from listeners and locals waiting endlessly for the Purple Line. It's Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer. And this is CityCast DC. So Eric Cortalesa, you are like the Woodward and Bernstein of the Hogan administration. Your investigative reporting in the Washington Monthly a few times now has really shown some shortcomings. And for those of us who live in DC area, one of those shortcomings is something a lot of us see all the time, which is the purple line, or I should say we don't see it all the time because it has not opened yet. Why do you personally care about the purple line? Well, you know, I lived in Maryland for much of my life. I actually went to high school in Prince George's County. I went to DeMatha Catholic High School, uh, right down the road from the University of Maryland, near where one of the uh, stations would be. So many of my friends live in Prince George's County. Many of my family live in Montgomery County. And I understood what an important project this was. And that is why I decided to look into it, to start digging, to seek the truth, and to let the public know what I found. And so we have an election. We're going to have a new governor, and they will have an opportunity to set their priorities. The greatest exemplar of any official's priorities is their budget, where they put money toward. And so we'll see how the next person deals with this. But the purple line is about more than just a light rail line, right? It's about access to opportunity. It's about equality in the capital region. And so Marylanders should care about it. And uh, it's important to know, of course, what our leaders are doing with our taxpayer money. Wait, so how'd you find this story? Well, you know, I reported on Governor Hogan's conflicts of interest in Maryland, and that made a really big splash. There were multiple complaints filed to the Maryland State uh, Ethics Commission. Uh, There was legislation that was passed in Maryland to strengthen the state's ethics laws as a consequence of that. And the way journalism usually works is uh, stories like that beget more stories like that. I was always paying attention to the purple line because I felt like it was being misrepresented in the local press. And so once I finished the story about uh, Governor Hogan's real estate, dealings, I began to train my eye toward the purple line. And the more I dug, the more I found. All right. Got it. And the thing with the purple line is it's such an important issue to a lot of people because it has like a social justice angle to it, right? That's uh, the idea is it's going to address economic inequality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the purple line was going to connect a majority black and majority Latino neighborhoods in Prince George's County to Silver Spring, to Bethesda, to Washington, D.C. And if you see what happens when you have new stations everywhere else in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, right, where everywhere where the metro went, right, there was development, right? There were restaurants, there were condominiums, there were shops, there was all sorts of investments. If you had new stations all throughout Prince George's County, you would have more investments all throughout Prince George's County. And this was going to be 
definitely a project that was designed to reduce inequality in the capital region. Can you sort of walk us through like what was it supposed to be and where is it at now? Yeah, absolutely. So the Purple Line has a really long history. I mean, it goes all the way back to the 1980s when some far-sighted county leaders bought several miles worth of land to build a light rail line that would connect the working class neighborhoods in Prince George's County to the major job centers in Montgomery County, namely Silver Spring and Bethesda. And it finally got the push that it needed when the O'Malley administration, Governor Hogan's predecessor, embraced this proposal. So he was able to work with the General Assembly to allocate hundreds of millions of dollars worth of funding to build the Purple Line and hire contractors to operate and maintain it. Governor Hogan, when he ran in 2014, at the time, he was a real estate guy. He had served a one job in the Ehrlich administration, but he was mainly one of the O'Malley administration's biggest antagonists. And he ran against the Purple Line and the Red Line. He vowed to kill it. When he defeated Anthony Brown, there was a lot of speculation about whether he would follow through on that promise. So basically, everyone at this point is following their sort of political type, which is to say, under the Obama administration and the Democratic governor of Maryland, this was like pretty classic development policy. You put in transit, the expectation is it helps people get to jobs. It also creates sort of town centers and economic activity in places where there hasn't been it yet. Hogan runs for office as a Republican. We don't want to spend your tax money. We don't believe in mass transit. We think it's a boondoggle. We want to build more highways. And he comes in and is in a position to do so. You did a piece in the Washington Monthly a couple of years ago that explained how it's a little bit more complicated than that, what wound up happening. Hogan ran against mass transit in 2014, unabashedly so, and wanted to undertake a shift in the state's transportation priorities toward highways, roads, and bridges. And that was precisely what he did, right? Six months in office, June 2015, he announces that he is going to follow through on his promise to kill the red line in Baltimore, but he would keep the purple line in Prince George's County and Montgomery County but under a couple of caveats, right? He was going to reduce the budget overall and force the two counties, as well as the contractors, to pay for more. There was a lawsuit filed against the Department of Justice saying that this was a civil rights violation because it was going to take money away from majority Black communities and shift money toward majority white communities in the suburbs. What my investigation found was not only did he take money out of Baltimore for the red line and shift it to highways, roads, and bridges. But that Hogan, who was a real estate developer before he took office, funneled that money, many of those projects that were adjacent to properties that his real estate- So in the meantime, uh, in order to put more money into highways, in the shorthand was, okay, they're going to not kill the purple line, but uh, they're going to make it cheaper. Uh, and in making it cheaper, I mean, one, uh, did it make it worse? And two, what does that have to do with the years and years and years of delays that have continued? Well, it's interesting. They tried to make it cheaper, but it's something that a colleague of mine, Phil Longman, calls false thrift, which is when you try to make a transportation project cheaper in the short term, you end up spending way more money in the long term. So some of the things that the Hogan administration did 
were not necessarily that significant, things like taking artwork off the walls in the stations, but some of them actually had a pretty big impact. For instance, one of the biggest transfers was going to be at the Silver Spring Station. Right. And instead of having it so that you could get off on one platform from the purple line and just walk over to the red line the way you transfer in any other station at a metro, uh, you've got to walk through a long overpass to get to the other line. And that's really important because if you're in Prince George's County and you're going to transfer at Silver Spring in order to take the red line to get into D.C., you know, that's a hindrance. That's a barrier. Some people predict could reduce ridership. The other thing is that he slowed down the track time. So especially during peak hours, you'd have to wait longer in order to pick up the train. So these are things that are going to offer less than it was originally envisioned when people were planning it throughout going back to the 80s, but especially during you know the late 2000s, early 2010s. So you published a thing in the Washington Monthly, I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago that talked about these delays and this weird deal that they cut with developers that let them walk away. Can you tell us about that? Like, And how should we feel as citizens, taxpayers, et cetera? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is that the story that we unveiled is a story of gross mismanagement that will end up costing taxpayers, not millions, not hundreds of millions, billions of dollars more than it was supposed to. So the Hogan administration struck a deal right, early in its administration, 2016, with the original contractors to build, operate, and maintain the Purple Line. It was a contractor consortium. They were going to build it. They were going to maintain it. And they had a deal. But they had a weird provision, very unusual, which basically said that if there were more than 365 days of delay, either party, the state, the contractor, counties, could walk away from the deal. No questions asked. Now, knowing this, it should have really governed the way the administration dealt with any sort of problems that had emerged. But there were problems that came up. And so the point of view of the contractor was, look, these have caused years of delays. So what happens is the contractors then go to the state and say, we need additional compensation to cover these overruns or else we're losing money. Now, that argument had resonance with Hogan's first Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Rahm, who in December 2019 struck a deal with the contractor for them to stay on the deal. And it was for less than $175 million. I have a feel like then something happened. Something happened. Secretary Ron leaves. He goes to New Mexico. He resigns. Governor Hogan then says, I don't like this deal. And he tries to renegotiate it on the eve of its execution. You can imagine how the contractors felt, right? They had a deal in place. They were ready to move forward. They were going to complete the rest of the project at cost. The Hogan administration had an opportunity to settle for less than $175 million. They had an opportunity to settle for less than $800 something million because there would have been a negotiation in, in place. And then what they did was they took them to court. They lost. And they should have known that they would have lost because of that provision that I mentioned. And then they ended up having to hire a new contractor, right? Now, the thing that happens is the pandemic takes place. They blame all this stuff, the pandemic stuff. But you were reporting that it, there's actually weird behind the scenes stuff that's inexplicable that is actually the real cause of that. That's going to cost people a lot of money and a lot of time. Yeah. And the really big thing to note, too, as well is, yes, 
there was supply chain crisis, there was inflation that caused certain materials to be more expensive when they finally struck a new deal in January 2022. But under the original contract, the contractors, not the state, would have been forced to eat any added costs under what's called a force majeure event. It's like an act from God, something outside the control of either parties, such as a pandemic. So because the administration bungled its negotiations with the previous contractor, they ended up spending $1.4 billion more than they would have under the previous contract. Plus, they ended up paying the old contractor a $250 million settlement when they agreed to let them walk away. And when do we get our pretty new trains? Now they're predicting <laughs> it by 2026. So we'll see. But that's four and a half years behind schedule of when it was originally supposed to be completed. So let's take a step back here. Uh, you know, Larry Hogan, I can't think of many governors who have better press than he does. He spoke out against Trump. I think the, the bar for moderation has has lowered quite a bit because because that uh, uh, by default qualifies him as being a moderate. But, you know, in your work and I think you're just looking at his campaigns, he actually ran not as one of these sort of well sensible business guys. He ran as an ideologue. And one of the places that showed was in attitude towards transit. Absolutely. I mean, especially when it comes to transit. I mean, one thing that Hogan has done differently is he has not tried to weigh in on the most inflammatory social issues, guns, etc. But I think it's a really interesting point because Governor Hogan has gotten a very big pass. On the national scale, Hogan has had a very smart strategy, which is to come across as this ostensibly moderate anti-Trump Republican. And that's a role that they really like. Right. And so they don't scrutinize him on these other things that have really flown under the radar. Well, let's give the devil his due for a second here, because there are people of goodwill who you could meet who would say the way Americans live, the way Americans want to live. It is better to spend money making highways more accessible to them and lowering their taxes than on building transit that uh, is not suitable to the kind of sprawl that we've already built. Has Hogan ever actually made an affirmative case? for that? Or is that just implicit? He's not the most, how should I put it, sophisticated policy thinker, right? He doesn't really make those. <laughs> that sounds like a euphemism for something. Right. And so he certainly tried to argue that it is a policy decision. He values highways, roads, and bridges, making highways more accessible, like you say. He's usually, though, his criticisms of like the red line, for instance, and even to some extent, the purple line was that it was a boondoggle. It was going to cost a lot of money and that it wasn't going to yield the benefits that he believed Marylanders deserved. Right. But for instance, right now, when gas prices are at record highs, that would be a really nice time to have a functional light rail line that could get people from their neighborhoods to their workplaces. So if Hogan does wind up as a presidential candidate in a couple of years with sort of a halo of moderation around having stood up to Trump and not having pressed on social issues, how much is this stuff going to stick to him, do you think? You know, it's really interesting. I think it will come back for sure. You know, folks at Politico Playbook noted after the Purple Line story came out that it was a story that would trail him uh, when he was running in 2024. You know, I have a source. Hogan was considering running for Senate. And a lot of the big complaints against him, whether it was against you know problems with the unemployment insurance system, the PR stunt of bringing COVID tests from South Korea that were inoperative, those didn't stick as much as the scandal of diverting money away from mass transit to highway, road, and bridge infrastructure projects that benefited his real estate company and that enriched himself. 
In one of your pieces, you had a, a riff about how he is now so different than another real estate developer in politics. You know, it's interesting. And of course, Hogan came before Trump, but the parallels are quite stunning. They didn't govern alike in certain ways. But look at this. I mean, Hogan had a real estate company called Hogan Companies. Trump had a real estate company called the Trump Company, right? Hogan became governor, put his brother in charge of his firm. Trump became president and put his children in charge of his firm. Neither of them went into blind trust. Neither of them divested from their holdings. And each advanced policies that benefited their holdings and enriched themselves. So the parallels are certainly there. Let's bring it back uh, for a second to the Purple Line, because um, it's a pretty important project. And so take out your crystal ball for a second. What's the future here? Is this thing actually going to happen? I think it will get completed. There's reasons to be optimistic. They've got a new design build team on the project. They're moving forward. Ultimately, it will be on Hogan's successor to see the project through. So it'll be very interesting to see how the gubernatorial election plays out this year. But ultimately, when the project gets done in 2026 or after that, let's uh, be prepared for the possibility of delays again. But it will perhaps be on a next governor to try and address some of the shortcomings that have manifested because of the underinvestment and because of some of the changing specs that happened under the Hogan administration. But I do think the Purple Line will be done at some point, but a lot of it's going to be on the next governor to see it through. Eric Cartelessa, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Thank you. There's no news today. We're going to allow you to savor the long weekend a little longer. Instead, we'll leave you with some words from Washingtonians who had thoughts about the Purple Line. Some of these were sent in to us, others were gathered by our team at the Bethesda Red Line stop. What's your name? MJ. MJ, cool. And do you live in Bethesda? Or? Yeah, I live uh, two blocks away from the Metro stop. Oh, cool. How long have you lived there? Since last August. Okay. So yeah, tell us what you think about the Purple Line that's supposed to be coming. I wish he didn't transfer the money to the highway fund. I know the governor switched it over, especially given now the cost of gas going up and everything. It seems like a, maybe a decision that should be reevaluated, but I'd prefer the subway if it was me. I'm Chloe. I really hope it gets finished because I think it'll be a really, you know, useful addition to the area, but there's just so much like conflict and gunk blocking up the actual like flow of the project that I don't know if it's actually going to get done anytime soon. I'm a public transportation person so I'm excited because it gives me opportunity to get some more places. So I'm excited about it. Hey this is Matt. I was just calling to leave some comments about the Purple Line. In general I think it's a good idea. Anything that increases public transportation and decreases vehicular traffic is always good. The downside, of course, is light rail is always dependent on vehicular traffic, so having dedicated space for it is generally better, but overall, I think it is a good thing. If you want to be featured on a future episode of CityCast DC, leave us a voicemail. We're at 202-642-2654, and be sure to subscribe to our morning newsletter for the occasional heads up on stories we're producing. That's it from us today. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. If you enjoyed this episode of CityCast DC, share it. 
And please rate and review the show on whatever podcast app you're using. We'll be back Thursday with a special episode featuring both me and my co-host, Bridget Todd. You don't want to miss it. Bye. Bye.